Romans chapter 1. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. Amen. The inspired Scriptures include... The salutation and the introduction to the epistle of Paul, the apostle to the Romans. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. And these are the words of the living God, who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and all that in them is. He was the help of Jacob, and he is our help. Thy king, O Zion, liveth forever and ever, and his throne endures to a thousand generations, meaning to all generations. And Romans 1, he has given to the sons of men, to us, his children, that we might know his will. Romans chapter 1. Let me read to you the first seven verses which make up the salutation of Paul to this church or churches he had not yet met face to face. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated unto the gospel of God which he had promised afore by his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Concerning his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, which was made of the seed of David according to the flesh, and declared to be the Son of God with power, according to the Spirit of holiness, by the resurrection from the dead, by whom we have received grace and apostleship, for obedience to the faith among all nations, for his name, among whom are ye also the called of Jesus Christ. To all that be in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Verse 6 tells us, among whom are ye also the called of Jesus Christ. Paul has mentioned in the fifth verse that this Lord Jesus Christ, that his gospel describes and, and reveals, was made of the seed of David according to the flesh, declared and shown to be the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, and that he had given grace and apostleship to a few men, Paul being one of them, to go and preach to all nations that those nations could obey that those among those nations could obey the truth of the gospel. That's in the fifth verse. For obedience to the faith among all nations for his name. The Lord Jesus Christ is the object of all preaching, and the Lord Jesus Christ is the beneficiary of all believers. Because when the, the message of Jesus Christ is preached and men believe it, his name is exalted throughout the earth where otherwise it would not have been heard. For how shall they hear without a preacher, and how shall they believe without a preacher. And so we have this fifth verse describing the great work of the apostles in carrying the gospel to all nations. Then in verse 6, Paul said, Among whom are ye also the called of Jesus Christ? Among all those nations, and among God's elect people among those nations, was the group of saints that was in the city of Rome, the center and capital of the existing world empire. And he tells these brethren, among whom are ye also? You know my travels in the past, that the Lord has blessed me to call out from among the Gentiles a people for his name. But he's also called out you believers in Rome for his name. And ye are also the called of Jesus Christ. The called of Jesus Christ being those that Jesus Christ has chosen and ordained and appointed unto eternal life. The saints in Rome were some of those. You know, the Lord has his people, and the devil has his people. And this is the way it's always been from the first family. The first family in the beginning had two sons. One was a child of the devil, and the other was a child of God. There was Cain, a child of the devil, and there was Abel, a child of God. And it has never been different from that down through the ages. By nature, when we are born into this world, by nature we are children of the devil. 
We walk according to the course of the prince of this world. We are by nature just like the children of wrath. There is no difference. We are in the palace of the strong man. It is not until the Lord Jesus Christ comes and delivers us out of that palace, he being called the stronger one. He comes and defeats the strong man at the cross and delivers us out of that palace and makes us his own. And so down through time, from Cain and Abel all the way to our present moment, there is the devil's people and there is the Lord's people. The Lord would tell Paul in Acts chapter 18 and verse 10, when he was facing much persecution in his first days in the city of Corinth, don't be afraid and don't leave town, for I have much people in this city. And that is the church of the Corinthians, to which we have two epistles in our New Testament. I have much people in this city. Don't you be discouraged, Paul, but you stand and preach because I have much people here. And that included the churches and saints that were in the city of Rome. In verse 7, our brother writes, To all that be in Rome. Now the Bible is not addressed to men at large. And neither is this opening words of this verse, to all that be in Rome. He was not writing to everyone in Rome. He's going to qualify who he's writing to by the next two descriptive phrases that describe his audience. They are beloved of God and called to be saints. Not everyone is beloved of God and not everyone is called to be a saint. These are the Lord's people in that city. These are his elect. The epistles of the New Testament were written to churches of saints. And it says that very clearly as we open up each epistle and we find out to whom it was addressed. In the Old Testament church, the Bible was given to the nation of Israel. They only had the Word of God. It was not given to anyone else. No one else could read it and claim its promises because its promises were to the people of Israel. Let me remind you of this fact by turning you to Psalm 147. Psalm 147, always keeping your finger at Romans chapter 1 because we will shortly return there. But I want you to understand that the Word of God is a possession of ours that is very particular and special to us. It wasn't addressed to all men. It's addressed to His children, both Testaments. The Old Testament to Israel, the New Testament to the churches of the Lord Jesus Christ. Psalm 147 and verse 19. He showeth His word unto Jacob, His statutes and His judgments unto Israel. He hath not dealt so with any nation. And as for His judgments, they have not known them. Praise Ye the Lord. See, it's another hallelujah psalm. And we should say hallelujah. Amen. Amen. He, he did not show his word to any other nation but to Israel. They didn't know his statutes and judgments. He was merciful to his people Israel and gave them his word. And he has been merciful to us. And he has been merciful to the Roman saints to whom he addressed this epistle. To all that be in Rome that meet these two qualifications. Beloved of God, called to be saints. Grace to you and peace from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. God is not the Father of all men. God is the Father of those that He predestinated to adoption, according to Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 5. As Sherry and Jonathan and I sat last night and read and considered this passage and the chapters to the Thessalonians, I told my son what a minority position we hold on the Word of God. And I hope that every young man in here that fears God will remember the minority position that was taught from this pulpit and believed in these pews and that you will never forsake it. God does not love all men. That is the most ridiculous concept possible from the Bible. It is the most ridiculous concept from the fact of the case. God does not love all men. It amazes me when people will say, well, if God doesn't love all men, then I don't want anything to do with that God. Why don't they bring the argument, if God doesn't love the devil, then I don't want anything to do with that God? Because they are purely selfish. 
They do not care about the glory of God. They do not care about the holiness of God. God cannot love any man. God cannot love a single man. God cannot love men or mankind or the human race except those that are put in the Lord Jesus Christ because they are sinful objects and God cannot love a sinful object unless it's in the Lord Jesus Christ. The devil wasn't put in the Lord Jesus Christ and there is abominable hatred for the devil through eternity which is going to cause his eternal torment. Oh Lord, show us the truth and bless us with the truth and let us rest in the truth. The love of God is such a wonderful thing, but when it is, it's scattered indiscriminately to all men or all men and devils, it loses all of its power. They say to us, you restrain the love of God because you limit it only to God's elect. I say to them, they restrain the love of God that it accomplishes nothing with any man. Because their God loves all men equally and indiscriminately and it does nothing. Because most of the people that God loves according to their theology end up in hell. And what kind of love is that? Tell me about the love of God. Are they down there singing about the love of God, wishing they had a parchment as big as the skies, and that they could take every tree as a stalk and dip it in the oceans of ink and write about the love of God while they're burning in hell? The Bible says you cannot be separated from the love of God. They're as separated as you can ever get in this universe from the love of God. Amen. Jesus will say to them, I never knew you. This beloved of God takes that phrase to all that be in Rome. Beloved of God, down to His elect people. The love of God. If God loves those in hell as much as He loves those in heaven, what made the difference between those in hell and those in heaven? This is such simple logic. That's why I said it's the most ridiculous concept in theology to think that God loves all sinful men. What makes the difference between heaven and hell? Something they did, not something God did. I don't believe that there's anyone down there singing the love of God. I don't believe anyone's ever going to be singing that from hell. He'll never be separated from those he loved. Those he loved, he foreknew them, he predestinated them, he called them, he justified them. And Paul's so certain of their eventual salvation, he uses the past tense and said, he's glorified them. Romans chapter 8, verses 28 through 30. Who shall anything to the charge of God's elect? Nobody can. And he loves them. The Bible says, The foolish shall not stand in thy sight. Thou hatest all workers of iniquity. Amen. Right. Psalm 5.5 5. Thou hatest all workers of iniquity. Of course that verse isn't taught, and it's not memorized in Sunday school classes. But it ought to be. Amen. Right. Because then they could appreciate the love of God. When they have the love of God hammered upon them day after day, day after day, repeated like a mantra, that God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Would you tell me about the wonderful plan for Judas' life? The wonderful plan for Pharaoh's life. The Bible tells me that God said this about Pharaoh. Pharaoh, for this same purpose have I raised thee up. This is how you graduated from kindergarten after your cookies and milk. This is how you graduated from high school with honors. This is how you made it through the military and all of your battles. This is how you made it to the throne of Egypt. For this cause have I raised thee up. This is my purpose in thee. Exodus 9.16, Romans 9.17. That I might show my power in thee and that my name might be declared throughout all the earth. Lord, how are you going to do that with Pharaoh? I'm going to raise him up to the pinnacle of power in this world, and then I'm going to take him down in the middle of the Red Sea, and then I'm going to loose his loins when he realizes that the wheels are coming off all their chariots, and then I'm going to drop that water on him and suffocate him to death. That is the God that we should tremble before this morning. The Bible tells us that the fear of the Lord and to rejoice with trembling, that's the God of the Bible. But that God that did that to Pharaoh had done something different for the saints in Rome. He had opened their hearts. He had regenerated them after having justified them by Christ's death, after having elected them in eternity, so that they believed the gospel, so that Paul could write to them, to all that be in Rome, beloved of God. To be loved by God is a wonderful thing. When it's scattered indiscriminately to all men, it doesn't mean anything. Do you mean to tell me that God loved the Philistines equal to the Israelites? Do you mean to tell me that God loved Jacob equal to Esau? 
When the Bible tells us that God loved Jacob and hated Esau? You say, well, it's not fair that God would hate anyone. Who taught you that? A social studies teacher in the third grade? Who taught you that? Did the devil teach you that with a fiery dart into your heart so that you would not know the true God of heaven? I'll tell you one thing. The devil knows the truth. He knows God doesn't love him. (laughs) He didn't come to Jesus and say, thank you, Jesus, for loving me. I know you won't torment us when the time comes. They fell down and worshipped the Lord Jesus Christ and said, We know who thou art. Thou art the Holy One of God. Art thou come to torment us before the time? They know the truth. They are the rebel enemies of God and they're going to get exactly what they deserve. No more and no less. Because our God is holy, just, and righteous in all he does. Men are not neutral before God. God cannot love them. Yes, the Bible says God is love. God is love. And he has shown his love toward the holy objects of his love when he put us in Christ Jesus. Amen. Yes, God is love. And so we ought to love one another so that we can show the character of God in us. But God can't love everything. God doesn't love lying. God doesn't love sin. And God doesn't love sinners. It's an invention of a third grade social studies teacher who has a second job as a Sunday school teacher that says God hates the sin but loves the sinner. That is not found in the Bible. God hates the sin and the sinner unless they're in Christ Jesus the Lord. Now listen to the words that we trust so much and we love so much. According as He hath chosen us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love. God chose us in Christ Jesus, before the world began, by designing the covenant of salvation, whereby He would send His Son to die for us, so that in Him we would be holy and without blame, and He could love us as His children. Without that great gift of His Son, He could not love us. When it says God is love, that doesn't mean God loves everything. It just means that God has as part of His nature, love. The beneficial compassion and care for the objects that are holy in his sight. The Bible says this in Romans 9.15. I will have compassion. Can we use that as a close synonym for love? I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. So then, I'm quoting scripture, so then it is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. Yes. Right. Lord God, have mercy on us sinners. Amen. He owes no man mercy. Mercy is something you don't deserve or it wouldn't be called mercy. And he has mercy on whom he will have mercy. He doesn't have mercy on those who will or want him to have mercy on them. He has mercy on whom he chooses to have mercy. And he had mercy on these saints, and he has had mercy on us. Because we are better than others? No, quite the contrary. Because we were just like the children of wrath in our nature, according to Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. We were dead in our sins. We were following the devil. We were walking according to the prince of this air and the course of this world. But he showed us his love to us. No wonder that text that you have heard from me many times, Second Thessalonians 2.13, But we are bound to give thanks always to God for you, brethren. I haven't quoted enough. Thank you. I was getting nervous that I'd quoted Second Thessalonians 2.13 too many times. But we need to do it some more. We are bound to give thanks all the way to God for you, brethren, beloved of the Lord. Because God hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the spirit and belief of the truth. That is follows four verses that says that God shall send them strong delusion that they should believe a lie. Why do some people believe such ridiculous religious things? Because God has sent them strong delusion to believe a lie. 
You say, well, that isn't fair. Why doesn't he give them a chance? He's given them so many chances. They are without excuse when they go outside and look at the stars. They are without excuse when they go outside and see the sunrise. And trust me, we will not get through the first chapter of Romans until we learn this rather thoroughly. Because it's repeated there so many times. God has shown the truth to them clearly. He has made the truth manifest to them. They are without excuse. That isn't even counting in Adam. In Adam, we all had the perfect chance. A perfect man in a sinless world with only one commandment to keep. And I've been over it so many times. But we had our chance in Adam. We have our chance every day. Oh, there have been lots of chances we've had. To all that be in Rome, beloved of God. God's love is the foundation and fountain of every spiritual blessing we shall ever have. When Jesus Christ told Nicodemus, for God so loved the world, he was telling that rabbi and teacher of the Jews something that they did not want to admit, that God could love Gentiles. For God so loved the world. Jesus was telling Nicodemus, the love of God extends beyond the borders of Israel. It extends beyond the borders of Israel. And God has so loved those outside the borders of Israel that He has sent His only begotten Son to die for them that believers could have everlasting life purchased for them. There is no offer in John 3.16. There is a description in John 3.16 of Jesus to Nicodemus explaining to him that salvation was bigger than the Jewish race. For God so loved the world. You know, the average person today, here's John 3, it's amazing. Some very intelligent men write me. You can tell in one email. Because intelligence is best shown by the ability to communicate and explain. By taking abstract thoughts like theology or things for the Bible teachers and being able to express it, I, they write me. But you know, when you press them, when you press them about their theology and you press them about the doctrine of salvation, do you know where they end up? They've only got one verse that they learned in Sunday school from a social studies teacher. God, God so loved the world. That means he loves everyone. Does it really? Is that really how the word world is used in the New Testament? That is not what my Bible shows me at all. Amen. Most of the occurrences of the word world have a very limited audience. Sometimes it's used to distinguish Gentiles from Jews. Like in Romans chapter 11 where that's plainly stated in the 12th verse. How about Luke chapter 2 and verse 1, where it says there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. Now I get excited about that one because it has the word all and it has the word world. A decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. Do you think Alexander the Great paid taxes to Caesar Augustus? Do you? Do you think that Sitting Bull and Crazy Horse, as they sat around a campfire of the Oglalasu Indians, do you think they paid taxes? Do you think the Incas paid taxes to Caesar Augustus? Do you think the Japanese sent an ambassage from the island of Japan to Caesar Augustus and paid them taxes, even in the time of Caesar Augustus? Not a chance. All the world simply meant the little tiny part of the world that was the Roman Empire. And when Jesus spoke to Nicodemus, he is referring to salvation is bigger than you Jewish folks that you teach every time thinking that there is salvation by race and salvation by nationality, salvation by circumcision, and salvation by descent from Abraham, rather than the love of God is bigger than that. And he sent his son to purchase eternal life for believers because the whole purpose of John's writings is to show believers that that is the evidence of eternal life. These things have I written unto you that believe in the name of the Son of God, that ye may know that ye have eternal life. And that ye may believe on the name of the Son of God. That is why we have the Gospel of John, the Epistles of John. Because belief, faith, is such a miracle. For us to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and to love the Lord Jesus Christ, it's evidence that we are indeed loved of God. God's holy. He can't love a sinful object. The Bible says, Thou art of purer eyes than to behold evil. Habakkuk 1.13. Exodus chapter 34 and verse 7 says that God is so holy, He can by no means... Clear the guilty. Nahum chapter 1 and verse 3 says, He cannot by any means acquit the wicked. God cannot acquit. God cannot clear. God cannot look upon iniquity. Well then, how does He clear us? And how does He acquit us? And how does He look upon us with favor? By putting us in the Lord Jesus Christ before the world began. 
Now the Lord Jesus Christ takes on some meaning. Yes, to think that Jesus Christ died for all men and paid for all their sins. Would you please tell me if you believe that? That Jesus Christ died for all men and paid for all their sins? For what sin are they suffering for eternity in hell? Help me. Help me understand what sin they are suffering for in hell. Because when I read in Revelation chapter 21 and verse 8, as it describes those in hell, it says, All liars shall have their part in the lake of fire. Jesus must not have paid for the lies of those people. And no, he didn't. He paid for the lies of his people. And if it hadn't been for the grace of God... We're just like those other people. There is no difference in us whatsoever. If the truth be told, many times, they look better than we do. It's all by the grace of God. All by the grace of God, beloved of God. We race over those words. Those words are special. We are bound to give thanks all the way to God for you, brethren, beloved of the Lord. Because God hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth. That is 2 Thessalonians 2.13. But we are in Romans chapter 1, but we don't want to leave it just quite yet. The Bible says, Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. Ephesians 5.25. Husbands, love your wives even as. When you have that adverb combination, even as, that means you better do it in exactly the manner that's just been prescribed. Husbands, love your wives even as. Christ also loved the church. Well, if Christ loved the church and everyone outside the church, then men ought to love their wives and every other woman as well. Does that make any sense to you? No. If you're, my explanation or their belief of that? Their okay, thank you. <laughs> Ephesians 5.25, husbands, you scared me for a minute. <laughs> husbands, love your wives even as Christ also loved the church. Does he love everyone outside the church as much as he loves those inside the church? Does he love the church as much as he loves the anti-church? No. Husbands are to love their wives, the one that they have chosen, and the one they have made their wife. And Jesus Christ loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might cleanse it by the washing of water and by the word, that he might present it to himself, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy. Ephesians chapter 5. Jesus Christ loved the church. If he loves everyone else, what does the love for the church mean? We're going to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Do you mean we're going to be celebrating there because he loves his enemies as much as he loves us? No, we're going to celebrate because he's loved us when he shouldn't have loved any of us. That's right. And he loves us because he chose us in Christ Jesus before the world began. Thank you, Lord. The Bible says, for whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth. But if ye be without chastisement, whereof all are partakers, all that he loves, then are ye bastards and not sons. Now let's just think about that for a minute. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth. But if ye be without chastisement. Everyone that God loves, he chastens. But there are some that he never chastens. I think I can keep this straight. Therefore... He must not love them. Because for whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. But if he be without chastisement, whereof all that God loves are partakers, then are ye bastards and not sons. You're still sons of the devil. You're bastards as far as the kingdom of heaven is concerned in the family of God. This is the word of the Lord. Do you know what a minority position this is? Start going through the 400 Baptist churches in this city. Call up the pastor and ask them, does God love everybody? You know, he's probably got a smiley face on his bumper that says, smile, God loves you. The same one that Noah used outside the ark. Laugh with me. It's holy laughter. I'll tell you who he loved. They were nice and dry and safe on the inside of the ark. And that's why they were in there. And Jesus will say, I never knew you. That doesn't mean he never had knowledge of them. It means he never had any affectionate relationship toward them. But he has always had one toward us. The nature and the love of God are wonderful. What love the Father hath bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. That doesn't mean anything if everybody has had that love expressed and applied toward them. But it's so discriminating. By his grace and his mercy, I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. And much more could be said, and it has been said, in a sermon entitled, Does God Love Everybody? 
or sermons entitled, Does God Love Everybody? But it's right there in those words, Beloved of God, in verse 7 of Romans chapter 1, To all that be in Rome, beloved of God. How do you know if God loves you? Do you love him back? Do you love him back with works that show that you love him? Words are cheap and they're nothing. Words in the Bible don't prove anything. That's why it's called in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, if you read it last night, the work of faith. Faith without works is dead, being alone. The work of faith, the labor of love. Love that doesn't result in actions is worthless. It's meaningless. It doesn't measure before God or man. And patience of hope. Hope doesn't mean anything. If you say, I have hope, hope means that you're able to endure persecution patiently. You're able to endure affliction and difficulty patiently. That's the real definition of hope. Patience of hope. See, if you've got those things, do you know what you can know about yourself? Well, it's just what First Thessalonians 1 said. Knowing, brethren beloved, your election of God. Right. How did Paul know this about the Thessalonians? By their work of faith, their labor of love, and their patience of hope. Yes. We love him because he first loved us. Amen. And we know that to be the truth if we look inside our deep, dark souls if it hadn't been for his love of us we would not love him it says that they were called to be saints to all that be in rome beloved of god called to be saints here is our duty god has loved us and saved us for a purpose for us to believe and obey the gospel of jesus christ to be called to be a saint that means god has appointed he has ordained and charged and bound us to be his saints He's going to tell us later in this epistle, in the 12th chapter, in the first two verses, that I beseech you by the mercies of God that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. Called to be saints. What is a saint? A saint is not somebody memorialized by the Roman Catholic Church like St. Anne. St. Anne, they say, is the mother of Mary, who conceived Mary... Immaculately, she was without sin. They make all this stuff up, and so they have All Saints Day, which is November 1st, and the evening before All Saints Day in the Catholic Church has to be a hallowed evening because it's all holy people that are memorialized the next day, and so we get Halloween. All hallowed evening, hallowed Eve, hallowed evening before All Saints Day of November 1st, which just happens to be by coincidence only. Don't think they had any design for the souls of pagans. It just happens to be by coincidence the end of the, the, end of the year, and November 1st being the new year, of the Druid devil worshippers of the British Isles. Just a coincidence. I speak as a fool. What is a saint? It has nothing to do with the Roman Catholic Church's definition of it. A saint is a sanctified person. The word saint is a sanctified person. What is sanctification? It's to make something holy, consecrated, and separated for the use of God. For us to be sanctified is to, for us to be holy. For us to be sanctified is for us to consecrate our lives to the service of God. For us to be sanctified or to be a saint is for us to be separated to the service of God. We separate ourselves from the world. Come out from among them and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing and I will receive you. Having therefore these promises, dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. This is what Paul is saying in these few little words to the Romans that were loved of God. To all that be in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints. Who has been called to be saints? Every person that God has saved by election. Christ has died for by on the cross for justification, and the Holy Spirit has regenerated, is to be living a holy, separated life for the worship and service and glory of God. Look at Ephesians chapter 2 with me. Ephesians chapter 2. As soon as I say Ephesians chapter 2, you should think of one word that starts with R. Regeneration. I know that regeneration is under consideration there in those first nine verses. Quickening, it's called here. Making alive. Ephesians 2, we've already referred to the first three verses. But why did God regenerate his children and give them a new nature? He tells us, verse 10, Ephesians 2.10, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, 
which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. That's called to be a saint. God's ordained that we would use the workmanship that he has put in us to live out a life of good works. That he's ordained for us to walk in them. Called to be saints. Look at chapter 4. Same epistle. Chapter 4 and verse 24. And that ye put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. Put on the new man, which after God. It's like God. It's similar to God in its nature and its desires and its affections. Put him on, which is created in righteousness and true holiness. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. Only a man that's been born again has that new nature, has that new man to even be able to put him on. He's in there. We, we are his workmanship. God has done a work in the hearts of his children that are born again. And that work is a new man. And that new man is to take over the life so that we live the lives of sanctified, consecrated, dedicated saints. We live holy, separated lives. This is what Romans chapter 1 verse 7 is saying to all that be in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints. God has saved you for a purpose. To live a holy life. How many verses would we need to look at for us to believe it? You know that it's there. You know that it's taught. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. For this is the will of God, even your sanctification. That's the will of God for your life to be sanctified. What does it mean to be sanctified? Well, in that place it says that ye abstain from fornication. Oh, it means to be holy sexually. Yes, it means to be holy sexually. How about 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20? What? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which ye have of God, and ye are not your own? Therefore ye are bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body and your spirit, which are God's. That's living a separated, sanctified life in holiness. Remember the sermons about the blue fringe of holiness. Do you remember the little blue fringe that every Israelite had to have on the bottom of their garments? When did they put those on? They put them on in Numbers chapter 15. What was the event that caused them? Because God told them, sew a little blue fringe on all of your garments, so everywhere you go you see that blue fringe and you remember something. Well, what were they supposed to remember? Coming out of the land of Egypt and having the Red Sea divided for them? No, they were to remember that a man went out on the Sabbath day and picked up sticks one day, and they put him in the detention center, and they asked through Moses to God, what should we do with this man? God said, stone him. Stone him. So that you would understand that when I give you a commandment, you are to keep that commandment. Because that is the holiness of the Lord. Therefore, I want you to put a blue fringe on all your garments so that you wear a little sign and a little reminder everywhere you go that you better be careful to keep all the commandments of God. That's Numbers chapter 15. That is holiness. When Isaiah saw the risen God on his throne in Isaiah chapter 6, he said, Woe is me, for I am undone. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Because the sound that was emanating out of that throne room was, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. It is the holiness of God. This is all in this verse. To all that be in Rome, beloved of God. Not all of them were beloved of God. The majority were not. But the elect of God in that city were. Called to be saints. The rest of the city wasn't. But the elect of God were called to be saints. Look at Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2. This has always got to be a principal part of preaching. Otherwise, we turn the grace of God into lasciviousness. When we go into the little epistle of Jude, and it says that there are men who have crept into the churches who turn the grace of God into lasciviousness, they preach a doctrine of salvation that doesn't require a changed life. And that is heresy, and that is wrong, and that passage says that those men are already condemned to damnation. In a little epistle of Jude. The true preaching of the gospel has got to require changed lives. 
Do the Thessalonians have changed lives? When you read 1 Thessalonians 1 last night, were those changed lives? Did the whole Christian world hear about the Thessalonians and say, Wow, look at the change in their lives. They turned from their idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for His Son from heaven? Their lives are totally changed. Those people were once offering bullets on altars to idols of stone. Now look at them. That's what that whole first chapter is about. For from you sounded out the word of the Lord. So that everywhere we go, we don't have to say a thing about the Thessalonians because your reputation has already preceded us. Titus chapter 2. Look at these warning verses. Titus 2.11. For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men. Teaching us that. The grace of God teaches us something. Teaching us that. Denying ungodliness and worldly lusts. We should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. Looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people zealous of good works. That is what the preaching of the grace of God ought to do. That's why we can't even get past his salutation and introduction before we run into the words called to be saints. Because that's our duty and that's the charge that's been laid upon us that we would walk worthy of our calling. And what is our calling? Our calling is the sons of God. And so we should live like the sons of God by living a holy life like God our Father is holy. Be ye holy even as I am holy. 1 Peter chapter 1 verses 15 and 16. So much more could be said. If any man love the world, all that is in the world is the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. You can't love them both. First John 2, 15 through 17. Matthew six twenty four. No man can serve two masters, for either he will hold the one, despise the other, or he will love the one and hate the other. Matthew six twenty four. No man can serve two masters. God has called us to be saints. And he had these Romans. To all that be in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints. If God loves us, shouldn't it be the easiest thing we could possibly do is just to live back like he is? I mean, we're after all, we're his workmanship. It's not that we have to work anything up. Do you know what the Bible says? For it is God which worketh in you both the will and the do of his good pleasure. This idea that I'm preaching about right now of living your life to the good pleasure of God, he's worked it in you. For it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do. The ability to choose the things that please God and the ability to do the things that please God. God has worked them in us by giving us a new man. This is right in those words, called to be saints. For we are his workmanship to this end. And he's worked it in us. And therefore it says in that same passage where it says he hath worked it in us. It tells us, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. We want to live a holy life. And if that isn't preached in conjunction with the grace of God, then it's the grace of God turned into lasciviousness. Lasciviousness means unbridled lust, unreigned lust, living according to your lust. And there is so much going down for preaching in America today that talks about the grace of God a little bit, but they don't require change lives, and that turns the grace of God into lasciviousness. Well, since God loves everyone, and He just has to love us because we're so lovable then you can live any way you want because God loves you. And as long as you've made a little decision for Jesus, you can know that you're going to heaven because God loves you. And He doesn't really care about how you live, but He does care because He's redeemed us from all iniquity to purify, that is to make holy, that is to consecrate, that is to sanctify, to purify a people, a peculiar people. And what is their character trait? Zealous of good works. Zealous. Of good works. Right there in the words, called to be saints. Then he says, grace to you. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. What a way to open a letter. He opens most of his epistles with some form of these words. Grace be to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you know These are not empty words. These are words just not to fill up the opening of epistles. Why are they repeated? Why does the Holy Spirit repeat them so many times? Because without the continuing grace of God in your life, 
you will amount to nothing. Without the continuing grace of God in your life, you will not be happy nor fulfilled. It requires the grace of God in your life to forgive you and cleanse you from your sins on an ongoing basis. There, this, would, this would take a whole study about the grace of God. You know, we often think about the grace of God, that there was grace in our election. True. That there was grace in our justification at the cross. True. That there was grace in our regeneration when the Holy Spirit regenerated us and gave us a new man. True. But there is grace needed every day of our lives. Hebrews 12, 28. After describing the New Testament kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ for the Jews, so that they would not be thinking too much about their Old Testament kingdom that was being celebrated in Jerusalem with animal sacrifices on wooden, I mean stone altars, brass altars. Paul would write, Wherefore, we receiving a kingdom, let us have grace, whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. We need to lay hold of every bit of grace that God's given us in our salvation, in our regeneration, and give it back to Him in acceptable worship, which is with holy fear of the great God who is still a consuming fire. Hebrews 12, 28 and 29. Look at James 4 and verse 6. In James 4 and verse 6, there are so many verses we could turn to. He giveth more grace. See, there's, there's grace beyond election, justification, regeneration. He giveth more grace. It, it shows up in James 4, 6. He giveth more grace. Wherefore, he saith, God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace unto the humble. There's more grace. We need to humble ourselves to lay hold of this grace that's described here in James chapter 4 and verse 6. When Paul says to these Roman saints, grace to you, he is calling down a blessing on them that ought to move us. It's a blessing we ought to give each other. It is a blessing we ought to pray for each other. We ought to kneel in our offices, closets, bedrooms and pray for God's grace upon each other. That grace can lift us up, can humble us, can make us great, can give us the strength to please God in our lives. Without it, you'll amount to nothing. Without it, you'll wonder what Christianity is about. You need the grace of God on a continual basis. But He giveth more grace. How about 1 Peter chapter 5? This truly could be a study of its own, but we will try to show some reserve and just move on from these salutary words. Of our brother Paul. Look at verse 10. But the God of all grace, who hath called us unto his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after that ye have suffered a while, make you perfect, establish, strengthen, settle you. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Now that's, those are some benefits of continuing grace. Make you perfect. Establish you. Strengthen you. Settle you. Make you perfect. We want to be perfected. We want to be closer to the Lord. We want to please Him more perfectly. His grace is able to do that, and it is the God of all grace who's called us to eternal glory. There was some suffering put, that these saints were enduring here in First Peter, because chapter 1 tells us all about it. He's able to establish us. He's able to strengthen us, and He's able to settle us. There's so many different descriptions about the grace of God that we need on a regular basis. So Paul said, grace to you. They already had the grace of election. They already had the grace of justification. They already had the grace of regeneration. Grace to you and peace. Now the God of peace, who brought from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you perfect in every good work to do his will. There is a peace that passes understanding. Isaiah 26 says, Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee. Philippians 4 says there's a peace that passes all understanding. It's a miraculous peace. It's a peace that doesn't make sense to the natural mind. How you could have a set of circumstances that should be causing you great turmoil, and yet you can have great peace in the midst of those circumstances. Grace be to you and peace. It's how we ought to pray for each other. It's how we ought to bless each other. It's how Paul greeted and saluted the saints that he wrote. Grace to you and peace from God our Father 
and the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is the Prince of Peace. Are you at war? Are you at war on the inside? Are you at war with enemies? Jesus Christ is able to defeat both kinds easily. And he's able to give you peace that passes understanding. Oh, circumstances don't matter. Paul and Barnabas sang pretty well in the Philippian jail. Paul and Silas. Paul and Silas. Barnabas wasn't there. Paul and Silas in that Philippian dungeon, they sang. Their backs were bleeding. They were naked. and They were in manacles. But they were singing praises to the Lord. We sing a song that prisons would palaces prove as long as Jesus is there. And you know what that is? That is grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. When his presence is there and gives us grace and peace, prisons can palaces prove. Turn way back to Numbers and see that this hasn't been a blessing given out many, many times and long before the Apostle Paul to all that be in this room and to all that hear this by other means, beloved of God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Look what the Lord did in his seminary. His seminary was for Aaron and his sons who were the high priests of Israel. This is a lesson for them on how they were to bless the Lord's people. Numbers 6, verse 22, And the Lord spake unto Moses, Numbers 6, 22, The Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto Aaron and unto his sons, saying, On this wise ye shall bless the children of Israel, saying unto them. This is the lesson. Aaron and his sons, who would be the high priests of Israel, were to bless the people of Israel with these words. Verse 24, The Lord bless thee, And keep thee. The Lord make his face shine upon thee and be gracious unto thee. The Lord lift up his countenance upon thee and give thee peace. And they shall put my name upon the children of Israel and I will bless them. Grace to you and peace from God our Father. And the Lord Jesus Christ. It doesn't take any pastor to do it. Nor does it take an apostle. Do you know that you're all kings and priests? You're all kings and priests. These words and Paul's words in Romans 1 verse 7. Are words that we ought to be saying about each other. Praying for each other. And saying to each other. Grace to you and peace. From God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And when we call down God our Father's name. And we call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. I will bless them. This is Romans 1 and verse 7. I hope it comforts your soul. To all that be in Rome. Beloved of God. Called to be saints. Grace to you. And peace. From God our Father. And the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.